Hello and welcome to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. I say this every week, but I love these Thursday shows. I love having my friends and people who love this show in the studio audience. I appreciate getting a wonderful guest. Every week we have thought, thought leaders and, and great thinkers uh, on big issues facing America. So I love the Thursday shows and I thank each of you for tuning in. Today our guest on the show is Frank Gaffney. He's been on the show many times and I try to do a different introduction each time because can't say the same thing all the time, but I want to briefly share some things about Frank Gaffney. Uh, I met him years ago when he was very involved in just the work of the Center for Security Policy. It's an organization in Washington, D.C. that he founded years ago. And the basic concept of it is it is a brilliant, expert-filled, experience-filled think tank, policy tank, and do tank, a place in Washington where they really examine all sorts of issues that relate to America's national security. Uh, Frank, among the many compliments I always want to give him, whenever he observes a new problem on the horizon, a new national security issue, he'll study it, but then he doesn't just say, well, golly gee, let's write a paper. He thinks that what could we do to solve this? Who could we find who might want to address this? So he's really a, a, a solver, attempts to be a problem solver, and just does a great deal of wonderful thinking um, about America and America's national security. Uh, he's also, so he's the founder of the Center for Security Policy, the executive chair at this time of the Center for Security Policy, host of Securing America TV with Frank Gaffney, and the vice chair of the Committee on the Present Danger, China. So he has all those hats and many more. He's a very uh, sought-after speaker, sought-after expert in all sorts of issues. By way of very quick background, uh, in, 19, in 1987, uh, he was nominated by President Reagan to become the Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Policy, which was then the senior position in the Defense Department with responsibility for policies involving U.S.-USSR relations. Among the many, I could go on and on all the positions he held, but that wastes time. I do want to just say that one thing he took away from that time is recognizing in America how we in America had to be formulating and contemplating our foreign policy, not just building weapons to defeat the USSR, but understanding, uh, which was at that time the big communist threat to the world, uh, but understanding what avenues of attack our enemies use against us and how we in America can respond to those and in turn be aggressors when we need to be in challenging our enemies uh, who are threats to America. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Frank Gaffney. Thank you. Thank you. So here's my plan for today. I do want to talk about some foreign policy things. I want to hit China, of course. I want to hit Iran. I want to hit Afghanistan. But I want to start on something really close to home. And I was telling you uh, before we went on air today, I watched a video this morning. One thing that the Center for Security Policy does, you put on these really great webinars. I mean, just experts and, you know, the webinar thing, if you can get experts on and they're crisp and they're responsive, they're not you know, wandering off the reservation on issues, you can cover so much. And so you had a um, long discussion, and I don't, I don't even know if it was Center for Security Policy or if it was President Danger China, but you put on a program talking about this concept, the othering. Mm -hmm. And I'm telling you, it was brilliant. So I'll quickly, for our listeners, remind you, if any of you did not hear, you heard me complain about it, but if you did not listen yourself, to the speech that uh, he who occupies the White House gave, Joe Biden gave, um, in, yeah, he, I'm going to call him that, um, in Philadelphia at, at the, um, where the Liberty Bell is, I mean, just talk, at Declaration of Independence Town, he gave a speech about America. And this is the one I described for you, had a very black, dark, 
brown, uh, dark background, red lights, like creepy looking, they look like Darth Vader or something, and then have military figures standing very ominously behind him. And many people, if they didn't listen to one word he said, thought, what is the message he's trying to convey? He's scary looking. But you dove in and talked about the things he talked about today. So first, let's start with, what is this concept, the othering? Well, first, let's say thank you, Debbie, for the marvelous introduction. I appreciate it so much. Could I have a round of applause just for the oh. introduction? <laughs> well, thank you. Well deserved. Um, and thank you for identifying this resource. This happened to have been a part of a series of webinars we're doing at presentdangerchina.org. Um, two a week, and uh, one focuses on the threats that the Chinese Communist Party is mounting against us. The other focuses on the people in our own country who are aiding and abetting those threats. Yes. This particular program, which I believe was last week, was about Joe Biden's othering of MAGA, Make America Great Again. And a colleague of mine, uh, the executive secretary of our Committee on the Present Danger, China, uh, among other things, a marvelous woman by the name of Didi Logason, did sort of the introductory course on what is othering. Mm -hmm. And basically it is how totalitarians of various stripes, but they all basically resort to similar techniques of first identifying and then singling out a particular group of people. And then trying to marginalize them in various ways. And then, thirdly, stripping them of their rights. And once they have been so disarmed, if you will, in many cases killing them. That's the process that has been used again and again with devastating effects and a corollary to it, which we also got into in the course of that program, Dr. Robert Malone, who I think you've talked to on your show, marvelous um, leader in the fight against um, dangerous vaccines and mistreatment uh, under the name of uh, countering the pandemic brought to the fore, as he has done with Joe Rogan and others, this uh, idea of mass formation uh, psychosis. psychosis. And he talked about how, as I say, the corollary to the othering is inducing the rest of the population, most of whom wouldn't otherwise have any truck with this kind of right. behavior, uh, to go along with it or at least to sit idly by as it takes place, if not actually participate in it. And this is what I think we are now confronting. It happens that it's not just MAGA, of course. It's, it's uh, what, Christian nationalists. It's, you know, veterans. It's patriots and, and people who love our Constitution. In fact, it's most of us. It's all of you people. Go ahead. Starting with you all. <laughs> exactly right. So um, to put a fine point on it, what we developed was where this ultimately takes you if you don't nip this in the bud. And that is to, I think, uh, violence against large numbers of people 
in the interest of consolidating power by typically a minority and dominating the rest. That is about, I've heard you say many scary things in my life. That's yes, about the scariest thing. And the other thing is so, it's, you stumble for words, it's so audacious, mm -hmm. it's so evil and malicious. And I do want to explore much of what Biden had to say that day. Um, but I will mention there were analogies made in this presentation about this is what how Mao Zedong divided China, what he did to China. He created an other. And so the people who were not acceptable to him were the other and then turn the people in the nation against those people. There was that. There was also Hitler and the Jews and I'm sure many other historic examples. But it was a big transition for me and I think for many to think of this wasn't just he who occupies the White House making a speech and you know, cheering on some policy issue he supports or whatever he'd be supporting. It was an operation against the American people. And, and many people had the, uh, felt creepy after watching the Biden uh, speech and, and, and were kind of shaking their heads and didn't like the imagery. But the notion, which I'm just so grateful that you all brought out, is that it wasn't just a creepy speech. It was a, it was a not just a kickoff, but it was a continuation of what has been occurring, this creating pockets of people, othering them, who are then our enemies. And I want to throw in, he did harp in this speech, Biden did, on MAGA. And I tried to say, and I've said in my show many times, I, 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 MAGA will outlive Trump. MAGA's about people having a renewed love of America. Trump just happened to be the one who used that phrase in the campaign. But the concept of renewal of the understanding of and love of America and the recognition of how much is being torn down really came from that campaign. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, your sense, though, I want to understand is that this mass psychosis effort, this is not a, an accidental outcome of this speech. You think it's more intentional, it's intended to have this effect on society. Oh, unquestionably. Look, I mean, look no further than the setting, as you said. Uh, it was totalitarian, no question about it. And when you put that uh, into uh, alignment with the comments that he made, um, the overtones couldn't have been more sinister. And the invitation of either people on the left to take matters into their own hands, as they notoriously did in 2020, or the instruments of the state, which we've seen increasingly being weaponized to go after the other, it bodes very ill for our constitutional republic. And you won't mention his name so much, but um, it really doesn't matter what his name is because it doesn't bear on who actually is writing these words and whose policies he is enunciating. This. And and frankly, we don't know for sure, which is an astonishing thing to say in in a in a democratic republic. Um, who's in charge? And the fact that whoever is in charge is going to war against arguably a majority of our population, um, it, you're right, it's incredibly ominous. 
Yes, it is ominous. You know, one thing I was thinking, listening to this and thinking about it later was, this is the way that the regime, the Biden regime, has treated the unvaccinated, mm -hmm. people who won't go along with, and this is, you know, not necessarily a MAGA issue, but just the unvaccinated are to be treated as the untouchables. Uh, and another one is going to is blossoming into place is climate deniers. Mm -hmm. People who will not go along with the climate change hysteria are not just to be viewed as someone with a different opinion that may be based on a certain set of research. They're they're to be ostracized. Sure, and and election deniers. And, oh, oh and huge Jan one. election January sixth, you know, uh, insurrectionists. Um, look, I, I, I personally think that the January 6th was a dress rehearsal for all of this, uh, that it was a deliberate provocation. Oh, yes. I mean, think about this. Nancy Pelosi had to have made a deliberate decision to establish the security posture of the Capitol in the knowledge that there were hundreds of thousands of people who were going to be perhaps in the vicinity at least without the National Guard, which she rejected when Donald Trump proposed it, without heightening the security level of the Capitol Police, without even maintaining it at the normal day-to-day -day level. Right. She deliberately reduced the level to the point where people were opening the doors police officers and inviting people to come on in. Right. So uh, to have this construed of uh, as and uh, and acted upon as an insurrection against our government uh, is, is one of the great frauds of all time. And it's being done to other the people involved and the people who were there for the rally and the people who more generally are Trump supporters and set the predicate for the idea that all of those folks um, will be reduced to domestic terrorists, to violent extremists, to enemies of the state, and to the other. And to? The other. Yeah. I was going to tell you, uh, right when um, after Biden took office, so it was, I think, maybe early February of 2021, uh, there was a DHS um, it wasn't as clear as the later one was, but DHS bulletin and someone from Center for Security, oh, Kyle Scheidler came on my show to talk, to talk about the Department of Homeland Security putting out a bulletin, essentially, as he was trying to, he said it's oddly worded, but it sounds like they're talking about people who want to challenge the, the legitimacy of the 2020 election as domestic terrorists. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's a, I mean, we used to know what domestic terrorists meant. You know, you were going to try to kill people and blow up buildings, but they were taking that domestic terror term to apply to how you think. Mm. And, and I mean, Kyle Shiloh is brilliant on no, that. He Go is, ahead. He's, he's one of our best at the center. We have a lot of very good people there, as you say. One, one of the things that I think it's worth noting, and some in the audience have heard me talking about this at length, including with you, uh, there was a time uh, in fact, we commemorated the 21st anniversary of the beginning of that era uh, in this country when we were concerned about people, as you say, who not just were willing to use violence and blow things up or fly planes into buildings or what have you, but who had a discernible agenda. 
that was very dangerous. Um, I call it Sharia supremacism. It was the belief that in accordance with Allah's direction, the doctrine of Islam called Sharia must be made supreme in all the world. Must be imposed. Everybody would have to submit to it and the duty of every faithful Muslim was to compel them to do that or to finance the people who would compel them to do that by jihad. In the course of the Bush administration, George W. Bush administration, and then in a vastly more intensive way during the Obama administration, Sharia supremacists associated with one of the most dangerous organizations on the planet, the Muslim Brotherhood, actually penetrated and exercised considerable influence over first the Bush and then the Obama administrations. In fact, as we've talked about, it actually began on September 11th, interestingly enough. But the point is that by the time these guys were done with the Obama administration, any reference to Islam in connection with domestic terrorism had been expunged literally from the lexicon of the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security, the Defense Department and so on. And something was insinuated and inserted in its place violent extremism or domestic violent extremism. And suddenly you started seeing people angling towards what Biden has now taken to the logical conclusion, which is that the real enemies, the real domestic violent extremists are us. Yeah, I did a riff on this yesterday because I'm very bothered by that term. Anytime language is used as a weapon, extremist doesn't mean anything. I mean, you could have said back in the era of slavery that people who said abolition, all slaves must be freed were extremists. You can't free all slaves. Extremist has no meaning without someone defining it. And when the left uses, or people in power use a term and they have the capacity to define it, to say who's an extremist is not our side, is that side. And the media, the willing media echo chamber goes, yeah, yeah, they're extremists. Pretty soon you've lost track of what the issue is and you're just talking about who's extreme. Especially when the corollary again to that is you suppress anybody who says otherwise. Yes. Not not just the the violent extremists themselves, of course, Uh, they're not, but they're not allowed to talk about it. But even the others who would simply say, wait a minute, there's something wrong here. I mean, the president actually said, I mean, the one thing that was quite true in his remarks on September 1st was he said, there's a lot that's not normal in our country today. Or words to that effect. And, and that's true. What is not normal is now essentially the fundamental transformation of our country, as Barack Obama used to call it that is very far advanced and has in mind, I believe, a Marxist revolutionary overthrow of our constitutional republic, full stop. Uh, that, I mean, I more or less say that on my show. I, I say we're watching the slow rolling Marxist takeover of our country. It's right in front of our faces. It's right, you know, it's not hidden. You almost wish it could be a physical invasion. So you could identify it, identify the perpetrators, well, say they're the enemy. Well, yes, but I mean, <laughs> the, the ideological invasion is more dangerous because more people don't realize it. I want to go back one more thing on the othering. I still think most people do not like to think 
that they get played, that they're being manipulated. I mean, especially women, we do not like thinking that we are being manipulated and played. We like to think we think for ourselves, we're, we're smart. And this whole concept of this part of the othering um, operation to not just stigmatize some group and, and, and isolate them, but to have vast portion of society mentally turn against them and, they, and they're just being manipulated into it. And I think if people saw that, they would stand up more. They would say, wait a minute, you don't tell me. But I think the progress in, with this, in fact, there's a doctor who wrote a book about COVID, talk about the mass, hypno, mass hypnotic psychosis, whatever is the mass term. Mass formation. Mass formation psychosis. psychosis, yeah. He's talking about the way the government unfolded COVID policy was to get people who want the vaccines to think of everyone who challenges the vaccines or anything the government says as just to be afraid of them and that it was it was a psychological operation the entire unfoldment of the covid policy right we as it happens we just completed today uh, the latest of these webinars uh, and we were looking at the role of the world health organization in achieving that uh, you know end state and uh, on behalf of who on behalf of the chinese communist party Right. which essentially controls the World Health Organization. The, the, we were using sort of the larger um, leitmotif of what they're doing with all kinds of uh, international organizations and institutions, by the way. We call it the march through the institutional yeah. uh, uh, cohort. So what, what you're talking about, Debbie, and, and we're, we're sort of zooming in on is a multifaceted, very deliberate, very systematic and unfortunately very effective change of the character of our country right. uh, in the interest of the collective. And that's one of the things that this mass psychosis uh, was characterized by. People may have felt, as you say, that something's not right here, but they didn't want to be with the other. They, did, they wanted to be with the collective. And, and to be, and especially when it was dressed up as, you need to do this for the collective. You need to wear the right. masks for the other, if not for yourself, for the not that other, but you know the the, the people that you care about. Um, and and why? What's so I think important about this conversation and and the things that are feeding into it is, we've got to connect the dots. You know, there's a lot of talk about that after 9-11, that we just didn't connect the dots. Well, the dots here are all over the place, and they need to have somebody sort of drawing in the outline that they form. And I'd like to think, Debbie, that we're not so far gone that, as you say, people will respond when it's explained to them. Right. We're all hoping that there will be an election this fall and that it will translate into a course correction based on that kind of sentiment. I'm a little concerned whether it will happen, to be honest with you, given the way these guys are playing. Oh, you and many others concerned. If we even have an election this fall, there'll be some emergency that causes them to say we can't have that. Um, I want to do, uh, like you mentioned, I want to talk about China. Um, but you mentioned a moment ago about 9-11 and the anniversary of it and how 9-11 was a, um, you know, obviously we, the 
deeply emotional, um, you know, 21st anniversary of that attack and how, uh, you know, just everything, all the emotions of that day come back for everyone. And we hope we learn some lessons from that event. And we, you know, you talk about connecting the dots. Yeah, we have learned some lessons about when someone comes and they want to only be trained to fly planes but not land them, we should be wondering why. Um, and then Donald Trump tried, as president, tried to have a, uh, some semblance of protection uh, for uh, immigration, not have people coming to our country from places where there's a serious Islamic Jihad problem, a, an extremism, can't even, I don't want to use that word, an Islam, uh, extreme behavior based on Islamic teaching. And it gets such a pushback. But you, uh, somewhere at the center, there was a uh, piece about this this week, about 9-11, and how there's a, um, we have, since that time, permitted kind of an invasion within some aspects of America's uh, government where we have people involved who are probably right on board. Can you, uh, with the idea of, uh, there we go, the next 9-11, here we are. You're, by the way, I'll tell our listeners, if you don't subscribe, the best, there are many great things to subscribe to, which my newsletter is the, the best one. But the second one is, yes it is, go to our website. Far and away. <laughs> but from the Center for Security Policy, Frank Gaffney, with whom we're speaking today, um, has a Secure Freedom Minute every day. And, um, they are, I, I think there's a video, but I always read them instead. It's quick, it's short, it's punchy and to the point. They're all, I mean, I used to text them, that was great today. That was great today. Finally, I stopped doing it because they're all great. But you had one about the next 9-11, so why are you worried about that? Uh, well, I'm worried about it partly because I don't think we've learned many of the lessons from the last one. And what's just terrifying, really, if you think about it, is that 19 people perpetrated that crime, killing 3,000 of us and uh, causing trillions of dollars worth of economic damage and setting in train two long-running wars and all the rest. When you think about that and then reflect on the fact that set aside an open border, across which, which we, we shouldn't have, have to set aside but go ahead no yeah. idea who is coming in we know to some extent something at least something at least about the 70 to 100,000 people we brought in from Afghanistan a sharia supremacist country of the first order and not many of them as best we can tell were the people that we thought we were going to be bringing the people who worked with us, the people who, you know, uh, assisted us yeah. or otherwise were on our side. The people who got onto those planes, by and large, were unaccompanied military-aged men. What could go wrong? A woman who was a female governor in Afghanistan looked around at the people on the plane and looked around then when she got off of it in, uh, I think it was uh, UAE. And she said, they're all Taliban. And she went up to one of them and she said, why are you on this plane? And he said, to wage jihad. Say again? To wage jihad. So, you know, if 19 people could bring down the World Trade Towers and damage the Pentagon and the rest, imagine what several thousand of these guys could do who have now been dispersed all over our country. 
And I say we know something about them, but we don't know where they are, I don't think. We don't know their real identity. Uh, and we certainly don't know whether they are waiting for some sort of order to perpetrate the next 9-11. For our radio listeners, you're about to go off to a break for three minutes. Do not go away. We'll be right here after three minutes. Debbie George Addis, America Can We Talk. You can come back later and listen to the whole interview at our website, americacanwetalk.org. Back to the people who are um, the, you're describing who are in our country who may embrace some belief in their uh, duty to commit jihad. The other thing that's happening related to this mass psychosis thing is that there has been this push of to say any questioning of Islam that you're an Islamophobe. And that is the trendy thought. That is the trendy thought in colleges, universities, uh, secular, every place. It, it, that is the thought that you are intolerant if you're even questioning. And so when people do get concerned, they're not even sure they should report it because they, which itself is another, it's like a suicidal mass psychosis. But again, the people that I was talking about a moment ago who prevailed upon first the Bush administration and then the Obama administration, didn't have to prevail very hard in the Obama administration. Um, to some extent, I think the Trump team and most especially again, the Biden team are Muslim brothers. And they said, you can't use any reference to Islam, let alone Sharia or terms like jihad. You know, in the, uh, a colleague of ours, Steve Coughlin, who I think you've talked to, did a wonderful analysis of the 9-11 commission report yeah. that was doing the retrospective analysis of how this happened, connecting the dots. And he just did a little sort of glossary mm -hmm. of the number of times Muslim, Islam, Sharia, Jihad, words like that appeared in that report. And it ran from you know a couple to dozens of times. And then he contrasted it with some of the documents in, you know, 1995 and, 19, uh, excuse me, 2005 and 2007 and so on. And those numbers went to zero because the Brotherhood said, their influence operators inside our country, inside our government said, you're giving offense. That's xenophobic. Uh, you're intolerant. You're a racist. You're a hater. You're a bigot. And, you know, people like me were accused of all of those things and nobody in government wanted to be. So they stopped being as clear about the nature of the problem and then they stopped thinking about the nature of the problem and then they stopped doing much of anything about the nature of the problem. And that has brought us to this present pass where not only are we not attending to that particular problem, we're not looking closely at the non-Islamist, Marxist, domestic extremist, terrorists, whatever you want to call them. Even the people who perpetrated those attacks in, in 2020 have gotten a complete pass. And instead, it's the rest of us who are now being fingered, othered, vilified, slandered, and persecuted. You know, this, it's again, the psychological operation type feel where you just, you don't say what's true. And even though we might sit at home and talk to your husband, your wife, your family, and every, you all know what's true, but you don't even say it outside your house because you might be then considered one of the bad words, one of the bad labels. And that ability to push people around, it, it, I think it's breathtaking. But here, and Debbie, just a quick point on that. <clears throat> one of the other tricks in this totalitarian playbook, of course, is to have 
your children ratting you out if you do say it at home. Yeah. Or in some cases, having the parents rat the children out. You know, it, it's, it's dividing families, it's breaking that, you know, loving, nurturing uh, nucleus apart so that there's nothing between you and the state and you will do what the state says willingly. Okay, um, because we're gonna end up running out of time, there's so many topics I wanna hit. I will say in that one though, it's very hard to see a path forward with respect to the um, Islamization, the you know the use of immigration as a as a means as hijra, I think the term is hijra. Yeah, the use of immigration for the purpose of committing jihad, for the purpose of uh, of Spreading converting people, mm -hmm. and you know that it becomes so hard to talk about. And I don't want there to be another attack. But after 9-11, it was easier to talk about. I mean, and I don't want there to be an attack. But it's like, unless we have it fresh in our minds from yesterday or from last month, we want to drop off and want to be, we placate. It's like we need, we need, it's not like, we need many more leaders willing to say the serious, hard, true things and be the policymakers, be the pushers that say, I don't care if this group over here is saying, don't say that, it offends me. I, I, and we, we, we need those people to emerge in Washington. But anyway, I want to hear, I'll turn to China for a minute. You have, uh, you've been part of, and in fact, I believe you're the instigator of, the Committee on the Present Danger China. And, you know, we have actually at the summit coming up, we have Gordon Chang, who's always wonderful in China, of course. Um, but we have this interesting relationship with China, our country historically, where we thought under Nixon, we were going to be just, oh, if we just make friends and trade with them, then they'll probably see how great freedom is and capitalism is. This will cure the whole communist stranglehold. And obviously that didn't go well. Um, and so here we are today, we're in 2022. And now Gordon Chang, you know, tries to say in many, many avenues of China's activity, they are trying in various ways. They ultimately want to become the single superpower. They believe they're destined and should be the single superpower. So Committee in Present Danger China, what things that China is doing are you looking at? Let me just ask if I can come back to something that you, you just Oh, you can just come back with. to it right now. I don't, wanna, I don't wanna do it right now. Let me do it at the end, but just okay. reserve a, a minute for me to make a okay. point of connection with what you said just before that. Because China's important, we need to talk about that. Um, what we've done is produce a brief, we call it, that is distilled from all of the work of our Committee on the Present Danger China uh, and the fruits of a new book that we've just published in July called The CCP is at War with America. And people can get it as a downloadable PDF for free at ccpatwar.com. And we've put this into a brief that is also now available at that same website. It's a video, I narrate it, but it, it basically walks you through the following key points, which I think respond to your question. For the entirety of its existence, the Chinese Communist Party has brutalized the people of China in myriad ways, including mass extermination. Why that's important is because, as you said, they make no secret of their ambition to rule the rest of us. And anybody who thinks they'll treat us better than they treat their own people needs their head examined. We talk about how they're pursuing this 
ambition to rule the world. It's not just rhetoric. They've actually been putting into place the instruments for doing so. Let me just give you one example, and we've got a dozen of them. There is a program that the present General Secretary of the Communist Party, Xi Jinping, who next month we expect at the Party Congress will be coronated Emperor for Life, or some formulation like that, hmm. of China. He has pursued a program he calls the Belt and Road Initiative. And many of us may not have heard of it. I frankly didn't know too much about it until we did a sort of analysis of it last summer, summer before this last one. 145 nations out of about 193 total have now gotten hooked up in some form or fashion. Some of them are still negotiating terms, but many of them are already now part of what amounts to a colonial infrastructure build out for the Chinese Communist Party. They're financing it, interestingly enough, with our money. Most Americans have no idea of this. There are about 160 million of us, we think, who are in the capital markets. Most of them have had a pretty bad day or two the past couple of days. But our money is in generally the hands of people who think that the best way to invest it, or a good chunk of it at least, is in Chinese Communist Party companies. Some of whom actually work directly for the People's Liberation Army, building the weapon systems that they're buying to kill us. What's wrong with that picture? The point is, the funds that they're using to buy, you know, uh, Sri Lankan government officials, and then get them to sign on to payday loan schemes, mm -hmm. whereby they will finance ports or airfields or rail networks or roadways or what have you, with the full expectation that, as with payday loans, they will default, and then the Chinese get to seize whatever it was they built with, by their way, their own people, not the locals. But the point of all of this is these nations, most of them have some combination of strategic real estate or locations or assets, mineral deposits, oil, what have you. They all lend themselves to power projection by the Chinese when they are militarized, as those assets inevitably will be. So when you put that together, you see that they're not just talking about dominating the world. They're actually moving forward with a program to accomplish it in many other ways as well. Which brings us to basically this biological warfare attack that they waged against us. And it was that, ladies and gentlemen. You know, uh, it's not just COVID that the virus, the so-called SARS-CoV-2 virus, came out of a biological warfare laboratory in Wuhan, China. And this was the subject of, of this new book. Uh, there's no evidence that it came out of nature. We don't have as much in the way of direct evidence as we would like. Lawyers like you know the difference. But we've got a lot of circumstantial evidence. The direct isn't available because the Chinese won't give it to us. But the point is, once it got out of that laboratory, by the 
purposefully or accidentally. We know for sure that the deliberate decision was made by the Chinese Communist Party to unleash it on the world because they wouldn't allow anybody from Wuhan to go anywhere in China, but they facilitated them going to places like us. So this gives rise to an analysis that says they treat people terribly, they intend to rule the world, they've been seriously pursuing the means by which to accomplish that, we are the impediment to it, we must be destroyed, and they've used what they call unrestricted warfare against us for decades, which is everything from economic warfare to political warfare to espionage to subversion to biological warfare to take us down. And it turns out that going back to 1991, when the then general secretary of the Communist Party of China, Xi Jinping's predecessor, Deng Xiaoping, apparently directed China's biological warfare program to have as its mission depopulating the United States so that it could be colonized by China. And the beauty of biological warfare is it kills all the people but doesn't destroy the infrastructure. Right? So it, all of these things are adding up to a people's war which they actually declared on the pages of their top propaganda arm, the People's Daily, in May of 2019. Gordon talks about this all the time. By the way, I learned most of what I know about China from Gordon, he's a great friend. But you put this all together, Debbie, and what you've got is a situation in which we think there are six discrete things that everybody who wants your vote in this election cycle, and I may be breaking the code for you, but for the next six or seven weeks, they actually are going to profess to care about what you think. <laughs> Not necessarily after November, but for the next six weeks, they will. So yeah. we ought to take advantage of it. And what we've recommended in this briefing is one, that we need to have them formally declare that the Chinese Communist Party is our mortal enemy. Secondly, that we need to get on a war footing, much as China is doing, by the way. We can talk more about that if you'd like. To deter, hopefully, and if necessary, to try to defeat these guys if they do go for it. Third, we need to disengage from China, not continue this practice of you know, enabling them with supply chains that they dominate and we rely upon. I mean, this is insane. We need to rebuild our military. Uh, this administration is taking it down along with most of the rest of the country. This is one of the hardest things, but it has to be done. Let's be honest. The politicians, and for that matter, the leaders in other of our institutions and sectors who are compromised by the Chinese Communist Party must be removed. We can't, we can't possibly have a war of any kind, unrestricted, non-kinetic, or violent, with people who are playing for the other team running our country. You just can't. And finally, one of the things that I think is most important, as I said earlier, is we've got to stop underwriting all of these bad things that they're doing. So that's the minute that I wanted to wrap up with. It's not enough that we have people, you know, 
in Washington who are doing the right thing, they're only going to be in Washington if we put them there. And if we put them there without getting this kind of commitment from them, you must expect that we're going to get more of the same. And it will be the end of our country. You know, in China, I have to say, first of all, that was a great summary. And um, I want to, um, you made allusion to this book, uh, The CCP is at War with America. If you just go to centerforsecuritypolicy.org or securefreedom.org, you can you can find a link and get to this. I think um, so. It's, you, it's the way it's supposed to work. But I know I know if you go to ccpatwar.com. ccpatwar.com. Right, it's right there. Okay. Because I was going to say, these kind of things, what we're talking about here, and this is one of the reasons I really do uh, earnestly compliment you when I introduce you. When people learn these things, I think people in the audience and people around the country, they think, why isn't someone telling us all this? I mean, if I knew all this, I would change my behavior. I would change my vote. I would change my advocacy. And so the people who do the kind of work you do, who connect dots, who lay it out, say, here's what must change, here's what must happen, it changes everything to understand the facts. And yet you have, and so back to the politicians who may be compromised, you have sitting in the White House, someone, and I want to get to him in particular, how compromised is our president by China and by his connections with China and Hunter Biden, his, his son's connection with China? Is, is he a, is, is it really a problem? <laughs> I mean, I know it's their problem. How bad is it? <laughs> you wouldn't think she does this for a day job, <laughs> having to ask that question. Yeah, I know you know the answer. Look, um, Trevor Loudon is one of my great friends and colleagues, and Trevor, yeah, Trevor was just on this webinar with us talking about the Chinese, Chinese use of these international organizations. And he's made the point uh, repeatedly that when Joe Biden first ran for office, when he was about 13, yeah. I don't know quite how he got that age thing through, but he, he, he got into the Senate just as soon as he was eligible, and he was there for whatever it was, decades and decades and decades. But he got in, in part, with the help of a notorious communist front organization called the Council for a Livable World. So, Council, Council for a Livable for World. A livable I've been over and over this on my show. World. I mean, yeah. This is a, this was an outfit back in the Cold War when I was a kid. We used to butt heads with these guys all the time. They were insistent upon the unilateral disarmament of the United States, which the, then, as you said, threat from communist totalitarianism of the Soviet Union was enabling by supporting. The Council for a Livable World. So Joe Biden is not just compromised by the Chinese Communist Party. It's not just evident in Hunter Biden's laptop. It's not just provable on the basis of what I think are the two common denominators of every single thing he has done since coming to office. One is, it's bad for America. And the second is, I think without exception, it's good for the Chinese Communist Party. Well, this is where I have to pounce. I, I did ask that question, obviously, as a setup thing. But to say, so people, you know, this Council for Livable World got him from a literal city council person, I mean, like no, nothing at all, to the U.S. Senate. No one does that. No one gets the, so he, they did it. He got that 
through support from the communists. And, and Trevor Loudon traces through. You can watch Joe Biden in the Senate out of his way to always, you know, he disagreed when Reagan was trying to, to disarm Russia. He was supporting America, you know, unilaterally abandoning our new, I mean, the guy has been anti-American, but this is what I was trying to get to. So where is the rest of the Democrat party? Are they actually all that compromised? Because you and I talk about this, but people who've been in Washington for decades, they know him. I mean, are all of them as bad as he is? Or are they just kind of like winning and he's in, so, so he's got a few questions on the edges of China. How could his own party let him stay in power? The Democratic Party, of which I used to be, I guess, a factotum when I worked for Senator Scoop Jackson, a great Democrat from Washington State, is no more. This is a democratic socialist party, which is the euphemism for a socialist or frankly, a communist party. And there are people who are not so overt about it, but again, you've talked with Trevor and I know you've had this deep dive with him that he does at the drop of a hat, which is enumerating. I think in his book, The Enemies Within, he has something like 125 members of the House and Senate who are demonstrably tied to the Communist Party of the United States or someplace else, okay. or both. So to your point, I believe personally there are still Scoop Jackson Democrats. Like three? No, I, 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 don't, mean, <laughs> I don't mean in elective office, I mean in the, in the body politics. Oh yeah, in America, I yes. think there are Democrats who don't want to destroy this country. I don't, who don't want to live under communism, who don't want to have the Green New Deal prevent them from having a vehicle or having to live in the city when they want to live someplace else or whatever. And they're not represented right now. And the great hope is that, you know, there will be an, op an alternative that will be appealing to them that is, well, for want of a better term, trying to make America great again. And I, think, and I think America. that's why they're so determined to destroy what they consider to be that other, that threat to their program. And personally, I feel that uh, based especially on what we've seen just in the past couple of weeks, folks, put nothing past them in terms of their determination to hold on to power at all costs. So my, my closing thought, I imagine we're at the, about the end of our time. You're great. You're great. Is, is you know, it falls to us to use this window to try to prevail upon people who left to their own devices will not resist the Communist Party. You know, it's like what we were talking about earlier with the other. They, don't, they may not want to throw in with them exactly, but they don't want to be called xenophobes. They don't want to be called nasty names. They may be getting some money on the side, you know, through uh, stock tips or something else. I don't know. But whatever it is, there are Republicans. Alas, Peter Schweitzer has written a terrific book yes, about red-handed in which they feature, some of them. There are others that aren't named. And there are, of course, many on the Democratic side that are compromised in this way. But it falls to us at the end of the day. We get the government we settle for. And we mustn't settle for more of this. That's the bottom line. Well, I'm, I feel like I'm uh, repeating an echo chamber myself. 
I truly think that, first of all, I'll say we also have an opportunity for people in the audience to ask questions. Someone has a microphone. We'll turn to that in just a moment. So if you raise your hand, I'll bring in the microphone. But I truly think that America, you talk about there are Scoop Jackson Democrats left in this country. I think the majority of people today who vote for the Democrats have no desire to live in a Marxist nation, no desire to live under communism. They don't see it and they don't believe, and, and, and the media doesn't help. The media doesn't connect dots for them. And I mean, your organization does a great job and Trevor Loudon does, and I try to do it in this show, I, I, to wave the, wave the flag, you know, raise the alarm bell. You know, you can lose freedom in this country. And once you have it, once you have lost it and you actually have, the, the Marxists, whether they call themselves that or they say, no, we're just the Democrats, the Marxist ideology, communist, socialist, whatever word you want to put on it, in control in this country, very hard to remove them, very hard without a really serious, dangerous uh, time in America. And, and maybe we have to go through that. Maybe we can't get to where we need to be to restore America peacefully. But this is why I've, you know, I went from being kind of lukewarm on Donald Trump because I, you know, I just, he didn't seem presidential when he first stepped into the arena, but he, maybe he's not a deeply ideological, can't quote the Constitution, but he gets the idea of America, and, and so do the millions who call themselves MAGA. They like, that guy loves America, he's not going to let us become socialists, he's, we're not going to, that's what they see in him. And this is, anyway, I'm, I, I'm, I'm blown away that we have to even have this conversation in 2022 in America, the best country ever created. And we're about this close to losing it all. And, and, I, and, and the Democrats keep voting because someone scares them about climate change or someone scares them about some other foolish concoction. They don't like tweets. Sorry? They don't like tweets. Yeah, they don't like tweets. I don't want any mean tweets. Okay, so now we have opportunity for questions. And here's the deal. Speak right into the microphone and because it has to be picked up not just in the room but on air. Thank you. and I really do enjoy it. It's very sobering. I do have two uh, just comments on two questions. One is that you said that the Chinese government unleashed this, you know, biological work. I think there's plenty of evidence coming out that the American taxpayer was a partner in this. That's one. And the other thing, which maybe is off topic, but since you mentioned it, 19 people caused 9-11. I, I don't buy it. Uh, talk about connecting the dots. So anyway. Well, on the, on the first, um, the American taxpayer had no knowledge that their funds were being used for this purpose. And that's what I'm saying about American investors. The fact that government officials, paid handsomely, by the way, by those taxpayers, did these uh, gain-of-function empowering capabilities. Uh, Dr. Stephen Hatfield was on our webinar today, probably the country's preeminent expert on biological warfare, and he just said it is insane what was done to enable, even if you don't know for sure that the biological warfare program, which is, by the way, illegal. The Chinese have a treaty obligation not to have one. But even if you didn't know that it's designed to kill us en masse, it still would be a bad idea to be giving the capacity to make viruses more lethal to an adversary. So I don't blame the American taxpayer. I, I think they're as chagrined as anybody. I certainly am. But, um, but I, I blame Tony Fauci and 
hope that he will be prosecuted for it, honestly. Yes. And on, on the 19, look, um, I, I, there may be additional information that I haven't seen uh, that I would find compelling, but I haven't seen it. I haven't found it compelling. So, But all I can tell you is I think that 19 people could do that. I think they could. I, I, th I think it's, uh, it's a matter of using force skillfully. And that's the thing that's frightening about this. If you multiply those numbers by orders of magnitude, and they're at least as smart and capable as those guys were, we've got a lot of risk. Another question? Um, so what do you think they were doing all the time right after he was installed, you know, where it was all locked down, barricaded? Do you think anything nefarious was happening uh, in, in the Capitol or White House? Um, well, after after the election, after the insurrection. Which election? The uh, so after uh, he who shall not be named was installed. Um, <laughs> That's why I couldn't tell who it was. <laughs> so what do you think they were doing with that? All the barricades, the lockdowns, the, you know, do you think anything was going on that we should be aware of or concerned of or no? Well, you have been in the room for this program, haven't you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, there's a lot to be concerned about. Look, I, I think the direct answer to your question is um, we imported which is the subject of that webinar we just did, we imported, thanks to the World Health Organization, at the direction of the Chinese Communist Party, what the Chinese call the China model. And it is designed to be a comprehensive set of tools for controlling a population. Not frankly because it will help with a public health crisis, but because it will help with a totalitarian domination of a population. And that's what we got. And we lost freedoms, bankrupted our economy, you know, uh, had uh, unbelievable societal impacts, families and otherwise. And, uh, and I think all of this, again, is uh, part of the Chinese Communist Party playbook. And Biden, I think, went along with it and perpetuated it and in some cases intensified it consistent with his general practice of harming America and helping the CCP. Go ahead, Pat. I don't even know where to start. Um, I, uh, first of all, can you make a comment on the economic forum, the global economic forum, World. Uh, and, and their input in what's going on and how they're controlling uh, if you can speak to that, and then I've got a follow-up. Yeah, um, Trevor was on the show, as I mentioned, just this afternoon and, and said, look, the World Economic Forum is a communist operation. Correct. The communists are globalists, the globalists are communists, and- It's the funding of, the, it's, it, they're funding it all. They're, all. they're all probably more fascistic than true communists, but whatever it is, they're working together, for sure, to the common purpose of effecting a global reset, a new world order, a totalitarian a, control, a domination by. So why, why is America falling into the trap of not knowing what the globalists are doing in the Ukraine with the 17 
biological labs that are over there creating viruses for the world. What's going on there? Well, I'm not sure what's going on with those labs. Because they funded I'm, them. Well, we funded them. Yes, that's correct. We funded them as part of our program called the Nunn-Luger program on the theory that if we kept their scientists who were inherited from the Soviet Union, remember, right. um, busy doing things that were benign like biological warfare defense activities, they wouldn't be doing nasty things like biological offense activities. So whether they're doing the latter in those labs now or not, I don't know. But I think that was the logic of what we were doing. My own feeling about it was the Nunn-Luger thing was a terrible boondoggle. And it wound up, you know, before the Soviet Union fell and then afterwards, it wound up essentially funding the ongoing activities of uh, the USSR. You know, one of the things that you were supposed to do with it, the funds, were to be dismantling nuclear weapons or nuclear arms. And, you know, to some extent, the, the Soviets did that with the money, but mostly they saved the money they would otherwise have to spend on managing their obsolete weapons and used it instead to build new ones. <laughs> so that wasn't exactly a, a perfect outcome. Okay, we, we, we may not have time for a second okay. question, but yeah. I'll talk to you One well, really short, quick question, yeah. So you've described a really, um, uh, a, a really methodical strategic thing that they, they've done for decades to try and infiltrate basically our entire government. <laughs> and you're saying we need to vote these people out to get, you know, to get the bad guys out. But if they've spent that much time and energy to infiltrate, are we really so naive to think they haven't infiltrated our elections to make it sure, a sure thing that we will not be able to vote these people out? I'm very worried about election integrity. Yeah. Um, my, my theory for the purposes of this discussion, which is brief, is if the calculation is that the elections will be close enough to be stolen, they'll do that again, yeah. which essentially is possible because most of the ways they stole it the last time are still in place. If However, there actually is a red wave coming, and the sentiments that we're talking about, which I think really are broadly shared by Americans, looks to be too big to steal. Then I think plan B is to figure out some way to say, well, we just hate to inconvenience you, but we just can't do those election things right now because of a pandemic, because of an insurrection, because of you know, some other threat. And uh, I, I'm really worried about that because I, I don't know what happens to the country if we're denied the opportunity for the kind of course correction that I think the vast majority of us think is needed. I think that's exactly the calculation they're doing. Will the people tolerate this if we, if we somehow just engineer and not have an election? And, and how much will the American people tolerate? My answer is very little. I mean, yeah. Frank Gaffin, this is a problem when I have you on the show because I have a lot of questions left, but we are out Let's of do another hour. Oh, okay. Just keep rolling. I would. I would. <laughs> I want to thank you so very much. Every time you come on the show, I, I'm taking notes. I learn a lot. I'm so grateful for your world of experience and dedication and insight and study and views. So just thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Yeah. 
And for all of you watching and listening online, I want to urge you, if you have not yet done so, to purchase a ticket for our fall summit. The America Can We Talk Women for Freedom Summit this year, third annual, is on Saturday, October 15th. And our guest we had today, Frank Gaffney, is one of our key speakers, along with other simply amazing experts. I think I ran through the entire list last week. I won't do that to you again. But go to our website, americacanwetalk.org. Click on the button that says Summit. It will lead you show you all the speakers. It will show you how to get tickets. It's here in Dallas. It's all day Saturday. We have great VIP sessions Friday night and, and late Saturday night. We have uh, Dr. Simone Gold, newly out of prison, will be joining us Friday night. We have Laura Logan joining us Saturday night. We have an amazing lineup of speakers, so you don't want to miss this. It's a really packed day of information, inspiration. Honestly, each speaker is going to try to tell us how all of us can do more to speak up and say and, and try to save America. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. This is America Can We Talk, where I always talk truth about America because America matters. And I will talk to you next time. Thank you so much.